Brought to you by North Memorial Health, where customers are treated like family. That means a big smile when you walk in the door and making sure your visit is as pleasant as possible. It's just like your family treats you. Find your healthy family at northmemorial.com slash family. Welcome to another episode of the Access Vikings podcast. My name is Andrew Kramer, joined once again by Ben Gessling and Michael Rand of the Star Tribune. Hi, guys. How you doing? Doing pretty well. It's Vikings week, regular season. The NFL is back. And that's what Brian O'Neill had to say. So that's the best part of my contract extension being done. The Vikings wrapped up their best blocker with a new five-year contract on Wednesday of this week, uh, bringing it up right up to the deadline that teams like of getting this deal done just before they start playing meaningful football. So we're going to talk about that extension for Brian O'Neill, what it means for the Vikings, what it really continues to say about how this roster is built. Um, And then also we'll preview Sunday's game in Cincinnati, and then we'll get to your questions as well. You can always send those to us on Twitter and find our Twitter handles at startribune.com. Guys, let's talk about the news of the day, though. Brian O'Neill wraps up a five-year contract extension reportedly worth $92.5 million. That used to be left tackle money, but now right tackles are getting it. And Brian O'Neill was certainly worth that for the Minnesota Vikings. Ben, was it just a matter of time in your estimation for them wrapping up what was really their top priority free agent heading into next year? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, I, I think they, they've talked about wanting to get it done. He's talked about wanting to be here. Um, it seemed like just a matter of time. The, the question was always, were they going to be able to afford it? And we still don't have all of the details there. And it's been reported five years, $92.5 million. Um, it, this looks like the same kind of thing that they normally do, where they tack five years on to the player's existing deal. So he has signed through 2026, not through 2025, as I understand it. So they have a little more time there. Um, the, the issue, I'm going to be curious to see when we get the actual numbers, not just the kind of the agent sticker price, which is what we have now. Uh, and we'll get them soon enough. But the thing I'm curious to see is how they handle next year because they pushed enough money into next year already that I'm interested to see how they handled it. And uh, Daniel Hunter probably won't be here on a roster bonus. I mean, that'll get reworked one way or the other, so you'll probably find some way around it. And the $45 million elephant in the room um, could go a different way as well, one way or the other. So maybe you figure all that out. but as far as whether they were going to do it, the question was, can they make it work and will they pay? The answer to the questions usually for both is yes. They they usually make it work and they almost always pay somebody. So, yeah, um, yeah it didn't seem like a, a huge shock. Yeah, and how they go about reporting this stuff is typically giving out the uh, highest total max value first and putting it over the new years on the contract. So if you believe how you read it now, $92.5 million over five, that makes him basically the second highest paid right tackle in football. Mike, is he worth that? I mean, it's debatable. He's, he's awfully good, right? And to this team, he is probably worth that because at this moment, he's really the only offensive lineman that you know exactly what you're getting, right? I mean, his, his performance has been, you know, above average and, you know, getting to getting into that, you know, well above average territory. He's still young. He should be kind of settling into his prime years. Now, these should be kind of his peak offensive line years where he's still young enough, still healthy enough, still big enough, but then also, you know, getting that experience and and stuff like that. So I I feel like we should probably, they're probably paying for his best years. So in that regard, yes, but you know, it it also does speak to, you know, 
on a on another team that has more options or on another team that you know isn't you know isn't just banking on this you know, this is their one guy that they know about they, they maybe they feel good about the future of you know Wyatt Davis maybe they feel good about the future of you know Christian Derrissaw maybe they like what they've seen in Ezra Cleveland maybe they're confident that Garrett Bradbury is going to get better you know all that said like Brian O'Neill is like the only real known commodity here at this point Andrew <laughs> like you said at the end of your story the other day like Ole Udo could be the right guard tomorrow and the the left tackle the day after that so I mean it's it's very much a a roster and a line in flux so getting Brian O'Neill signed to an extension, at least something you can count on a base you can build around. That's probably pretty, he's worth it to them, I guess is how I'd put it. Yeah. He's, he's one of the reliable pieces on an offensive line that doesn't have too many of those. He started 42 straight games since he stepped into the starting lineup in 2018. He's somehow at while turning 26, I believe next week, he's somehow the senior member of this offensive line, having made more starts than anybody including a veteran in Rashad Hill, who's 29 years old and stepping out there at left tackle for them, who's only made 17 starts in his regular season career. So Brian O'Neill is the guy that he's the leader. He's, he's the captain of this line, even if he hasn't been given the team captain status. When Riley Reef got cut and released, they automatically turned to him as the guy that, that needed to hold things down on that line. And so, Ben, I guess, what does it say about the state of this line? We heard Brian O'Neill say today, this is the most excited I've been about an offensive line since I've been here, but at this point, we really need to, I think we really need to see that before we can believe that there's much to that at this point. Yeah. I think there's a ways to go before you can share that level of excitement because you have a lot of questions that are not going to be answered before Sunday and may not be answered on Sunday. Is Rashad Hill going to hold up? I think we'll have a, a fairly decent sense of that uh, fairly quickly, especially if the answer is, no, <laughs> he can't hold up. We're going to know that, I think, fairly soon. Uh, Ezra Cleveland moving sides. Garrett Bradbury's needing to have a big year. Um, Ole Udo starting for the first time. Yeah, I mean, really, there's questions everywhere to the right of Brian O'Neill. And I think if they play well enough, you can sit there and say, okay, they've got five young, drafted, homegrown players that they could build around for a while. And you like some of the size that some of those guys have. You like the, the athleticism that Garrett Bradbury brings if he is surrounded by people that are big enough to help him do the rest of the job, I think, in terms of standing up to bigger tackles. Um, that, yeah, I think there's things to like, but it's just this question of, will they all develop in the way that they're being talked about now, and will that happen on time? Yeah, and Brian O'Neill now signed through the 2026 season, as Ben said. It gives them – one of these, one of the few options, long-term options that they've got. If you look at Christian Derrissaw's situation as well, it's a similar timeline where they've got him on his rookie contract and fifth-year option through that stretch as well. So if he develops into the guy they think he might develop into, they might have their bookend offensive lineman for quite a few years moving forward. But we just saw Christian Derrissaw return to practice today on Wednesday of this week for the first time since his August 12th operation. That was the second surgery he had gotten to try to repair this lingering groin issue that he played through last fall at Virginia Tech. But Mike Zimmer even pushed back on the notion today when he's talking with reporters and saying, I saw the headlines that he's going to return to practice, but it's just individual drills. It's not, he's not going to do teamwork. He's not going to do any of this stuff. It sounds like, Mike, they're going to take this pretty slowly with their first round pick. And they're kind of banking on Rashad Hill indefinitely taking that left tackle job moving forward. 
which I think is okay. It's it's not the end of the world because we've seen Rashad Hill. He's he's not a he's he's okay, right? He's he he's not your future franchise left tackle, but you know for two, three, four weeks, however long you think it takes, I don't know how long how long it really is. Um, he's probably okay. the 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 big thing is if if you get an if you get one more injury in that span, and you don't feel like Darius ready. Either he's not healthy enough to to be in there, or he's you know just not ready. You know, whatever it is, game speed stuff like that. Then then we're getting into territory where you're starting to scramble, and maybe you do see Ole Udo at left tackle, and you see you know Wyatt Davis at guard, or some something else happening, kind of a, a shuffling of the of the line. And, you know, again, it's hard to plan for injuries in any cases, but it does kind of speak to the, you know, the, the, the lack of depth at some places in this roster that, uh, that, that is, that could be exposed if they're even just a little bit unfortunate this year. Yeah. This contract too, also for O'Neill's contract does kind of speak to the, how much it costs to keep good linemen. I mean, we saw in, in 2017, the Vikings had to overpay a bit to get Riley reef off the free agent market out of uh, Detroit where he was, I guess he was good, but he wasn't, he wasn't remarkable in the pro bowl or all pro sense. And then he comes here and he's reliable as well, but O'Neill might have a similar kind of career trajectory, depending on if he becomes thought of as household names like Ryan Ramchek or Trent Williams or some of these other guys, but O'Neill is the fourth right tackle this summer alone to sign for over 17 million a year, just gauging that off of new money on the contract. I mean, Ben, that's a steep price to pay for a right tackle, but I guess when you're going up against Khalil Mack, um, Daniel Hunter, if you're facing the Vikings, it seems like these right tackles are becoming just as important as the left tackles were once upon a time. Well, yeah. I mean, those are the guys that you could thank probably for these prices going up as much as they are because teams move their top pass rushers around in the case of Khalil Mack or in the case of Daniel Hunter, they're playing over on that side. So, you see so much more where you have to have a decent right tackle. It's not just that, well, you got to put him over there because he can play on the left side. You have to have somebody over there that is reliable. And I think we've seen it with teams like the Saints. Certainly that, that contract that they gave Ryan Ramchek really set the market and continues to. He's still number one, even with Brian O'Neill's new deal on the books, at least what it's reported to be on the overall price. And again, I, I want to see the full numbers before we put it in its proper context, but yeah, I mean, it's become a spot where you have to spend a little bit more money and it's, it makes the whole thing a little more expensive to keep together because you got to pay the left tackle, you got to pay the right tackle. Um, and they're going to have to, some decisions to make on the guards in the not too distant future. They have a decision to make on Garrett Bradbury after this year. So um, yeah, it, it's uh it's, I guess it's like everything else where the, the cost of doing business has gone up, but it, it makes the job that Rob Brzezinski does um, even more like uh, Harvey Keitel and Pulp Fiction. He's, he's the fixer in terms of the financial stuff. He needs, he's the wolf. He has to come Send in, in and, the briz. Send and in clean the briz. everything up. Yep. So it's uh, once again, I, you can almost set your watch by it before the season that in the days before the regular season opener, Rob Brzezinski is going to have some some gymnastics to pull off, some uh, some work to do to fix things and get them where the brain trust wants them to be. Yeah, it was interesting. As, as the Vikings were finalizing Brian O'Neill's contract extension this Wednesday morning, you know, getting the final details and, and getting Brian to sign it, Mike Zimmer was downstairs talking with reporters 
on Wednesday morning um, here in Egan. And at one point, Mike Zimmer mentioned that the depth of the roster is somewhat concerning to him. And he continues to mention why in saying that, well, we're built financially with the way we're built. And he, he means top heavy, basically you're paying your stars a lot. You've got to rely on a lot of these minimum wage backups to come in and help you. Uh, ben, it was interesting to hear him say that just an hour before they officially sign another guy to a big deal. And, and this isn't a critique of the move of O'Neill because I think we all agree they had to do this. Yes. But, but it's just another guy they're paying a lot of money and that they have to work around in terms of his salary. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to do everything you want to do. And I think Mike Zimmer has been the type that has said, um, we want to have depth. We want to have a roster that we don't have to tear apart when we sign people. And, and you can, when he says top heavy, there's no place where it's more top heavy than the quarterback. And you could surmise that he might've been referencing that with, with that comment. But yeah, I think the way they have done this has made things more difficult for him just in the sense of if one of these guys goes down, it's a lot of your cap that is not available to you to fill out the roster. It's you have dead money from previous deals that you've gotten out of Kyle Rudolph, Riley Reef. Uh, you have money you've pushed into the future with guys like Adam Thielen, with uh, the Boyd years on Anthony Barr, with uh, Dalvin Tomlinson has that. There's there's a number of those. Sheldon Richardson has that. There's a number of those deals where they push money into the future, and you are spending money on things other than football players. You are spending. It's essentially like paying debt service on a on a loan. You're you're paying for something other than an actual product that comes back to you. So, um, I'm sure as a coach, that's not a fun place to be, and and that's probably I think where some of this comes from. Is he just their hands are tied in certain spots in terms of what they can give him because of their financial situation. Yeah. And the Vikings find that out at this point where they've got, I think the last time I had checked, it was something like six or no, 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 excuse me. It was eight players that were making at least 10 million per year on their contracts. Brian O'Neill becomes, I think the ninth on the current team. And then that's not counting. Uh, I don't think that's counting Patrick Peterson or Michael Pierce who are making eight to 9 million on their current deals. And I, I looked around the NFC cause I was curious how that roster construction compared to other teams in the NFC. And that's actually pretty normal. But the key difference is, is that the Vikings in 2021 have almost half of their salary cap space allocated to those players. And, yeah, and I so think they were tied for fourth in the NFL uh, with that number of contracts, number of eight figure contracts as of uh, last weekend and nine may tie them for the most now. Yeah, and, and well, and speaking too, just about the 2021 cap, they've got all that. You can structure it in so many different ways, right? We all know that, but they've got it structured to where they've put a lot of that money just into this year and this cap, yeah. and that that limits the amount of people you can go and sign on one-year deals or guys that are going to come in and help you for a little bit, uh, and how many one-year deals they've got. So they poured a lot of money cap-wise into this year. We don't know how O'Neill's contract's going to shake out in terms of that because he's more of a long-term play for them. But as they put pressure on trying to win now, they put a lot of that money into this year. And the only other teams in the NFC that are like that are the teams that are kind of set up to push all in in the middle of the table, Tampa Bay, Dallas, and Green Bay. And Minnesota's right up there. And those teams, I think, all are kind of trying to pressure their stars and their teams into winning right now. And so it's a fascinating construction. And it does tilt a little bit toward the more top-heavier side 
than other teams in the league. Uh, ben, how are you feeling though, just about their depth right now on their roster? Like, are, are you as concerned as Mike Zimmer seems to be? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I think it's a pretty big concern. I, I think if you look at, and let, you know, let's go down the positions. You look at quarterback, we don't know. I mean, Sean Manning was brought in for that reason. Running back, they have some. Um, I think it's one of the few spots they do. Wide receiver, who is it behind Thielen and Jefferson? Offensive line, uh, we're going to find out a little bit with Rashad Hill, but if, if even if Rashad Hill goes down, you don't feel terribly great about the young guys that haven't really proven anything. Defensive line, I think they have depth. I think it's one of the few spots that you would say that's the case. They've brought in a lot of guys that have been here in the past in terms of Everson Griffin, uh, Sheldon Richardson, Stephen Weatherly. So they've got a little bit there. Uh, linebacker, I don't think it's great behind the starters. And when Anthony Barr has been injured, you have to think about that. And in the secondary, you always figure you, you never really have enough. And they've cut guys like Jeff Gladney. They don't feel great about Cameron Dantzler, clearly, at this point. And you don't know if guys like Chris Boyd are going to hold up if you need to play them in a 17-game season. So other than probably running back and the defensive line, I wouldn't sit there and say this is a deep roster. And I think, oh, I, we didn't, I didn't even mention tight end. And that has been obviously thinned out even more now with Irv Smith gone. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a big concern. And I think it's, it's one of the reasons why if you want to be cool on this team, that would be it because you still have – a top-heavy roster, you still have a number of players who are unvaccinated among the top end of the roster. And like it or not, the NFL um, COVID protocols are much more lenient on vaccinated players than unvaccinated players. That's that's a big part of the reason people say, why, why are we still worrying about this? That's part of the reason why. Because the NFL has incentivized one side of this to a fairly large degree. So. Yes, I'm concerned about the depth. I think that's a valid, uh, a valid concern. You bring up tight end. The Vikings obviously traded for Chris Herndon from the Jets over the weekend. They sent a fourth-round pick to New York to acquire Herndon and a uh, sixth-round pick from the Jets. Um, basically trade back two rounds to acquire a tight end in New York who was really inconsistent. Now, he's a former high school wide receiver, didn't do too much at the University of Miami, but has the kind of athletic traits for a big bodied guy that you'd figure could kind of scheme him into being a mismatch, not quite to the level that Irv Smith was, but um, he was a guy that when you look at the measurables, the jets clearly thought we can make something out of him. Um, but he lost the job this summer in a competition with guys like Ryan Griffin and Tyler Croft and the jets viewed him as expendable and they moved on from him. The Vikings end up getting this enigma of a player in Chris Herndon not too sure what they're going to get out of him right away, but it seems like Tyler Conklin is going to take that starting role. They're going to rely on Brandon Dillon as the new number two tight end while Chris Herndon gets up to speed because he'll only have one week of practice before joining the Vikings in Cincinnati for this opener against the Bengals. Uh, but Ben, what should the realistic expectation be for what this tight end group looks like and then how much the offense might have to adjust without Herb Smith on that lineup? Yeah, I'm curious to see that. I mean, I, I think Chris Herndon probably comes in and plays a little bit, but yeah, it's like who it's Tyler Conklin. And is he healthy after the hamstring? By all accounts he is, but is, is he going to be able to take on 
a large part of that load, given how much they need their tight ends to do. And he's probably going to have to play just about every snap, which we haven't really seen him do to that degree in the NFL before. So I think it changes things there. I think in a lot of ways, they've talked about wanting to be in heavy sets because it keeps defenses in heavy sets and you can throw in those situations. Mike Zimmer has talked about maybe we have to go with more three wide. And who's the third receiver? Is it D.D. Westbrook? Is he ready to go? Um, do they want to commit to playing that way? How does that change things for Kirk Cousins? How does that change things for Dalvin Cook? When you change numbers in the box and you're moving guys in and out, maybe it helps. Maybe you find some things that work if you're splitting guys out and maybe you get lighter boxes because of that. Although you see a lot of defenses, I think, starting to say, we're going to play a lighter box on you anyway because we're more concerned with taking away the pass. I mean, that's been the the uh, the Rams approach. I think you're going to see the, the Packers have done it to the Vikings, but with their new defensive coordinator kind of coming from that school, you're going to see some, some teams do that anyway. But, yeah, I, I think it's going to be awfully interesting to see given how much the Vikings like to use not just one, but two tight ends. And now the depth there is a pretty big question. So what Herndon can come in and do is, is one of those things that as we head into week one, it's certainly worth watching. Yeah. And Tyler Conklin is expected to take on, as Ben had mentioned that lead role. Um, Irv, Tyler had a good line where I guess Irv right after he underwent surgery last week, had texted Tyler. He said, go get paid. You know, this is your time right now. And Tyler's also in a contract year. Uh, entering this season. So if he can produce, if he can show that he can be a starting tight end in the NFL, uh, this guy could line himself up for quite a payday. And now he's not Irv Smith. He's not going to be able to do a lot of the things that Irv can do. But uh, as a fifth round pick, the Vikings still took Tyler Conklin a few years ago as as a guy they envisioned being that kind of receiving tight end. Uh, So I'm very interested to see how he can produce down the field as an option. But I think there is going to be something he gives up as a blocker because Irv came out of Alabama as a guy who could be a lead blocker in the backfield. He could move around, be kind of that H-back that can yeah. um, be an, an extension of the running game as well. Um, to me, we might be seeing C.J. Ham and Conklin sets a lot more often um, instead of maybe these two, three tight end packages because we've seen C.J. line up as a, as a tight end before in line. We've seen him move around quite a bit in this offense. Um, split I wonder, them out wide sometimes, at least in a in a pre-snap look, usually before motioning it back in. But yeah, they they put them in a lot of places. Yeah, so I wonder if we're going to see a lot more CJ Ham because of this. I know we already had quite a bit of ham on your plate for the Minnesota Vikings <laughs> offense, but I think there might be even more with Irv Smith going down. I, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I th- I think that's true. I mean, I, I think you've seen them run twenty-one personnel quite a bit, twenty-two personnel even at times. That, I mean, I, I guess I consider 12 personnel with two one running back, two tight ends to probably be their base offense. Um, maybe it becomes more 21 if you want to keep the advantage of keeping defenses in their base or keeping heavier personnel groups on the field for those defenses. Maybe it's that. And that becomes kind of the workaround until you get Irv Smith back, which probably isn't going to happen this year or until you feel good enough about your other tight ends that you can compensate a little bit there. Yeah, and it's a good question about D.D. Westbrook, too, because we haven't seen this guy at all in a preseason game. He has been ramping up his workload and practices over the past couple weeks, which would indicate that he's feeling good. Coaches, players have all expressed optimism that Westbrook can help them right away. He might end up being their punt returner and their wide receiver three on week one without us seeing him in any preseason games leading up to it. So, um, we have to really wait and see, and the Vikings have to wait and see how much he can give them come week one in Cincinnati. 
Um, ben, with the Vikings heading to the Bengals and Mike Zimmer returning to his old stomping grounds, what interests you about this Sunday's game? They've got Joe Burrow on the other side. They've got Riley Reef at right tackle now, Cincinnati does, after the, the Bengals had signed him in free agency after the Vikings moved on. They've got a lot of skill position talent, not too many guys to talk about on defense, but what interests you about this game on Sunday? Uh, probably Jake Browning revenge game. Mostly. <laughs> I mean, you know, that, that's probably the top storyline for this one. Yeah, that, that's right. Browning, Browning signed onto their practice squad. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The old, uh, let's get a guy that, that was playing for the team that we are about to face thing. I, we'll see if it's more than that. It, it very possibly could be, but, yeah, the, the timing of that is always kind of funny. When, hey, come in and tell us everything you know about your former team. Um, no, I, I think the the Bengals' offense is going to be an interesting first test for this revamped secondary with Jamar Chase, Tyler Boyd. Uh, yeah, they, they've got good receivers, and they've got a quarterback that likes to spread the ball around and and. Um, try to make people pay if Joe Burrow is, is recovered from that ACL. That's, that's going to be, I think one of the big things to watch is how much are the Vikings getting spread out? It's also going to be hot. So I mean, the, the forecast calls for temperatures in the nineties, Cincinnati is one of those. I learned this covering baseball covered uh, the Washington nationals for four years. I spent a fair amount of time in Cincinnati as a national league city. And you learn being there in the summertime, that is a surprisingly hot place uh, when the weather is still nice. They, they're famous for the, the freezer bowl with the the negative 59 wind chill, although I don't think we probably measured that the same way in 1981 that we do now, but that city can get very hot. So that's one of those, it's a little like when they opened in Nashville a few years ago, probably similar kind of weather where it's going to be hot and humid. And how much are those corners ready to run around? How much are they going to get spread out? How much does that, all of that become a factor? I think that's the most interesting thing about this matchup to me is the ways that the Bengals probably will try to stress this new look secondary. And is that group up to the task a year after we saw in week one, a new look secondary, not be up to the task also in a unique environment when it was Aaron Rodgers in an empty stadium. Yeah. The Vikings don't want to repeat of that. That's no, sure. they don't. <laughs> they certainly don't. That was the game where Cameron Dantzler gets beat uh, on a go route. There's like, what, a minute, 30 seconds left or something before halftime. And Dantzler's playing way too close on uh, Valdez Scantling, who just breezes by him before halftime for this like 45-yard touchdown catch. Um, Yeah, I don't imagine Patrick Peterson, Bashad Breeland running into the same thing, although we just saw Bashad Breeland beat deep by Tyreek Hill uh, in a a scenario on a go route for a 35-yarder in the preseason. But uh, Mahomes and Hill are a little bit different than Joe Burrow and anybody he's got. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting game. I, I don't think it's going to. I don't think we're going to learn too much about the Vikings' offense in this one. I think we're going to see a healthy dose of Dalvin Cook. I think we're going to see a healthy dose of these heavy packages and the Vikings trying to impose their will in the running game on Cincinnati. They do have Trey Hendrickson. They do have DJ Reader at nose tackle. They do have a lot of guys that can. Um, kind of contribute, but they don't really have any stars. This is kind of a no-name defense in Cincinnati. And so to me, I I agree with you, Ben. I think this is going to be more about what does this Vikings defense look like when we finally see all these pieces together? We finally see Michael Pierce, Dalvin Tomlinson in a game together. You finally see Daniel Hunter back on the field after he didn't play at all in the preseason. You finally see Patrick Peterson debut in a Vikings uniform. All these different pieces. We're going to learn, I think, a lot about kind of where Joe Burrow's at 
as a measuring stick, but also kind of, yeah, where this Vikings pass rush in this defense are, because we have questions about this new uh, retooled secondary, as well as this pass rush with DJ Wanham starting opposite um, Daniel Hunter. And then what does that pass rush look like as it's going up against an offensive line in Cincinnati? That's, they're not half bad. They got a lot of flack in Cincinnati for not taking Penny Sewell over Jamar Chase, but they've got Riley Reef. They've got some pieces on that offensive line that I think can help them. And so I'm curious to see how does Everson Griffin look? How does Sheldon Richardson look? How does some of these kind of pass rushers for Minnesota stack up against them? So DJ Wanham, you're starting right end as well. I mean, how does he handle that job? Yeah, it's it's a big question. So, Mike, I was just asking Ben what interests him out of this this Bengals game on Sunday, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. What interests you about this matchup on Sunday? He's probably also going to say Browning revenge game. <laughs> Jake Browning revenge game. Uh, I, I'm, you know, the biggest thing I want to see is it's less about the Bengals. I'm, I'm curious to see Joe Burrow, but the biggest thing I want to see is what does this revamped Vikings defense kind of look like? We've been hearing about it. You know, they've got a lot, you know, these veterans on one year deals. They should be a completely different defense from what we saw towards, especially towards the end of last year when it was no Anthony Barr, no Kendricks, no Daniil Hunter. They got Patrick Peterson. You got, you know, Pierce. You got Dalvin Tomlinson. You got, you know, Everson Griffin's back. Like, this is so much that's been added to this defense from where they left off last season. I want to know how much better are they? Are they, you know, are they, as some projections would suggest, a top five caliber defense, or are they merely, you know, better, but more like a middle of the pack, slightly better than that defense? Because I think that's going to tell the story of whether this is a playoff team or whether this team's going to falter. All right, let's get to some Vikings questions here. We got the mailbag opened up. You can always send them to us. Any questions you have on Twitter to our Twitter handles, you can find those at startribune.com under any Vikings article. You'll see my name, Ben's name, Mark Craig's name, Michael Rand's name. And the Twitter accounts are not too far behind. We got one question here that I thought was interesting. Um, and it's uh, by Rufio. He wants to know, is there, ever, is there a ever so slowly developing rift between Mike Zimmer and Rick Spielman? And he says it's in light of Zimmer continuously pointing out the poor production from drafted players in recent years. And I guess I would also add, uh, this is interesting because we have heard Zimmer talk often about roster construction and top heaviness and finances. And, you know, we, we can't go get a veteran backup quarterback because the finances or you know, the, the uh, depth of the roster because of finances, all this stuff. Uh, ben, what do you think? As, as somebody who's been around the team all summer and all, all Mike Zimmer's tenure, uh, what do you think about that question? Is there a rift developing? Um, rift may be strong. I do think there is a little bit of schism. No, I wasn't word I was going to use either. Um, I, I think Mike Zimmer's frustration with some of these constraints are coming is coming out a little bit. And spoiler alert: uh, you if you if you're of the belief that this is a problem. Mark Craig's sit down with Zimmer that he did a couple of weeks ago that runs in Sunday's paper may add a little bit of fuel to that. There's a couple of things that Zimmer said that I think will probably lead a little bit more in that direction. Um, but yeah, I think some of it is just calling it what it is in terms of they have this top heavy roster. Uh, they have not been good in the first round lately. Um, they, they really have not hit on a first round pick other than Anthony Barr and 
Teddy Bridgewater and then Justin Jefferson last year in the time that Zimmer and Spielman have been together. So I, I think you're, you're starting to maybe see a little bit of that. And the, these relationships tend to um, weather a bit over time. So it, it may be, I mean, these two are in year eight working together and that may uh, start to be a factor a little bit. Well, how much do you think the quarterback has to do with that in the sense that it's, it's part light- of it too. Yeah, it just being a lightning rod, not only his contract, the vaccine stuff, his play. I mean, everything that this is a coach that we had heard before they signed Kirk. Let's not try to rob from our defense to better our offense. And then famous uh, combine side session. It seems Mike Zimmer keeps hinting, though, with some of these finance stuff that the quarterback is hindering some of what they want to do for the rest of the team. Yeah, that was what I was going to mention is that, you know, I I have picked up on more of it lately. It feels like he's kind of just feels like he's free to speak his mind a little bit this year because he knows there's kind of a lot at stake and he's maybe trying to position him. I'm talking about Zimmer here, trying to position himself as the good guy and not the bad guy in this. But you, in terms of a, a rift might be strong, I think Ben's right. But in terms of an ideological difference, you don't have to go back you know, you can go back three and a half years to that to that combine session where he's talking about wide open spaces and let's not put ourselves in a position where we can't, you know, this is how we've won here. Let's not overpay the quarterback essentially in order to try to, uh, you know, try to go all in. And I think he could see this. I could see, I think he could see this moment coming a long time ago. And that's kind of what's happening right now is they've just kind of pushed things down the road, pushed things down the road. They've still been okay. But, you know, because they have a lot of these top-heavy contracts, particularly the Cousins contract, they can't do a lot of these other things they would like to do depth-wise. And so that's probably, if there was a, a rift that began, it probably started in 2018, and it probably hasn't gotten any better since then. It'll be a big season for the Minnesota Vikings in 2021 for many, many reasons. Uh, we got another question here from Johnny. wants to know, is this the time that we see Alexander Madison's usage increase? This season. Now, the uh, subtext to that is obviously Dalvin Cook coming off um, a really heavy, heavy season in terms of usage in 2020. Uh, obviously, used quite a bit in 2019 as well. Um, ben, what do you think in terms of that question? I would just, my two cents on it are I don't think we're going to see much come off of Dalvin Cook's plate. Uh, compared to recent years, because this coaching staff, Mike Zimmer has shown time and time again, when they need to win a game, they're not going to look for the long term in terms of Dalvin Cook's health. They're going to look for the short term and keep their best players on the field. I guess, what do you yeah. think about that? Yeah, I agree. I, I think it would be smart if you have opportunities to limit Dalvin Cook in games where you don't need to hand him the ball as much. But when they have needed to win, they have shown we're not concerned with it. And frankly, if you're going to pay a running back in this day and age, that's how you should do it. You should get the most you can out of him while he's young and healthy and productive, and then you should move on. It, that sounds callous, but that's how running backs get used. That's why a lot of them don't get paid because it is such a fungible position. So if you have a guy that's playing at this level, you probably should use him to the fullest that you can. Now, there's a happy medium because you want to have him on the field and feeling good and healthy when the games matter most in December and January. But this let's save him from when he's 27 or 28 thing. I, I don't think they're going to do it. And I, I'm not sure that there's a lot of sense in doing that anyway. 
Yeah, and Mike, I guess how much of it, how much of a drop off do you think there is to Madison, and what do you think about just the running back usage in general? Yeah, that was the point I was going to make. Good, good thought there, just because I, I used to think that there wasn't as much of a drop off. Like it, it wasn't really until Cook got hurt. Lat was it last year that he got hurt? Yeah, and in Seattle. the Seattle game, and you know, not to put the onus on Alexander Madison, but you know, if if Cook's in there, do they get that yard on the goal line? Do they win that game? Um, does he make a different read? And then, you know, the subsequent weeks where, you know, Madison's a good back, but I used to think he was like 80 to 90% of Cook, and he's more like 60 to 70% of Cook. Like yep. Alvin Cook is just kind of a special player. When you've got a special player like that, I don't see the usage going down that much, especially in a must-win season. Well, it's funny because Andre Patterson talked about that a little bit today. Michael Pierce was talking about kind of workload and, and how many snaps are, are good for him and I, we asked Andre Patterson about that today too. And he said, yeah, it, it depends on the depth behind them. He said, I could give you coach speak and sit up here and say that everybody's the same and you got to manage it all. And he said, no, when it's winning time, I want my best players on the field. So it comes down to that it comes down to how you feel about the guys behind them and coaches who tell you otherwise are blowing smoke essentially is what he said. And that's the way we've seen the Vikings use Delvin cook is when it's time to win a game, they want him on the field. They want the ball in his hands. All right, guys, it's time to win this game. we got our final question here. It's the fourth quarter. We got one from Chicken Fingers. It's not a statement, but it is actually a question. He wants to know with oh, – It's a statement and a question. Oh, I suppose it is. He does provide a statement at the end. Uh, he, he asks, within the Vikings roster, who do you believe is the most poised to exceed expectations this season? And who is the most poised to regress from expectations? And he offers his statement by saying he thinks it's going to be Tyler Conklin – and Daniil Hunter, respectively. That's interesting that he would think that Daniil Hunter is going to regress from expectations and maybe Tyler Conklin exceeds them. Um, I guess if I, just to throw mine out so you guys can think a little bit on this, my mine to exceed expectations I think might be Everson Griffin just because I think he's at a place where as the season goes on, he's not going to be playing that much and he might find a groove as a pass rusher where he might be able to threaten putting up uh, double-digit sack numbers, maybe, if he can be that kind of impactful edge rusher, because they just don't have it right now opposite Daniil Hunter. And I do think Daniil is going to get so much attention on that one side that it is going to open up opportunities for Sheldon Richardson, Everson Griffin, and the other guys who come in there on third downs. And then regression-wise, I guess I just, I'm curious to see, can Justin Jefferson keep up that pace? Mm-hmm. When, when, he yep. is a, when he's a known commodity, what's going to happen to him and how defenses treat him. And then what's going to happen with the Vikings offense without Riley reef at that left tackle spot. Can they keep pushing the ball downfield to him at the same rate they did last year? I'm curious about that. Uh, Ben, what do you think? In terms of the guy that I could see exceeding expectations, I would go with, I mean, Tyler Conklin's a good one just because he's going to have a a higher, um, share of the offense I think than than he has in the past um I would also in terms of guys that I could see exceeding expectations a couple of these young receivers I think will play a bigger role than they probably were slated to play initially I think D.D. Westbrook um I don't I don't know that D.D. Westbrook is going to do enough to keep Amir Smith-Marset and K.J. Osborne from being part of the offense So, so to whatever extent they're going to be part of things I think is uh, probably dependent on them. And they've looked at, they've looked like um, 
they're capable of, of being contributors. So I, I would keep an eye on that in terms of players that don't meet expectations. Um, boy, I, I just think that the corners, I just, I wonder a little bit because you have guys that are in the back half of their careers. Bashad Breland's coming off a shoulder injury. Are you going to be able to go out and have those guys play at a high level all year? Uh, Patrick Peterson and Bashad Breland are, are going to be your starters. And they've been banking on this idea of, well, they have all this knowledge. Um, Mike Zimmer gets a lot out of older corners. And that's probably all true. I mean, I think it is all true that the experience plus Mike Zimmer gives you something. My question is, when teams spread them out, as they will do, um, are those guys going to be able to run all season? Or is that going to become something of an issue in terms of uh, just getting beat physically and you know, then you get into Cameron Dantzler, you get into uh, Harrison Smith still trying to do it at, at age 32. Uh, those are kind of my questions. Is this secondary going to be as much better as has kind of been talked about? And Mike, what do you think? That's an interesting question. I've, I had a couple candidates for surprise, you know, exceeding expectations. That Westbrook, to me, has a chance to you know, to have a pretty good role in this offense, especially, you know, when you see, you know, Chad Beebe out, BC Johnson got hurt, you down Irv Smith. I mean, that's a lot of pass catchers that, you know, could have had a, you know, third, fourth, you know, complimentary role. And, you know, Westbrook's a guy who's done it. He's, I think he caught 60 plus balls a couple of years in a row for Jacksonville. If he's healthy and, you know, fully back from that ACL, I could see him being a pretty reliable target for Kirk Cousins, especially if they don't feel like they've got enough tight end depth and they have to use more three wide receiver sets, things like that. Um, so Westbrook, I think Ezra Cleveland could have a good year. I always am down on the offensive line, but I'm going to say Ezra Cleveland, I feel like is someone who could have a somewhat of a breakout year and, and be poised to, you know, kind of take that, that jump into being a pretty reliable performer there. And um, on the regression side, I got to go with, unfortunately, with Harrison Smith. I just feel like they gave him the new contract. I know there's new money there. At that age, I just worry about guys, you know, foot speed and just the processing. And, you know, is he at age so it's 32, I think, or coming into age 32? Is he going to still be, you know, 95% of his peak? Or do you start to come down to 75 to 80% of your peak and become, you know, closer to an average player than an elite player? Yeah, Harrison Smith's an interesting one because of just the year that the secondary had last year and how hamstrung he seemed to be by having such inexperienced corners and being stuck in, in deep half coverage, deep quarter coverage the entire time. If, if these corners can play decently, I do wonder if that'll help him be more of an impact around the line of scrimmage or if we're going to see more of the same of last year where he's having to just bail guys out by playing deep all the time. That's He's an interesting one because of how the guys around him kind of affect his play too. I, I hadn't thought of him as like a regression candidate, but that's interesting. Um, we'll, we'll have to see. In week they'll one, be in, finally, they'll be in trouble if he regresses too. It feels like a lot of their uh, there's a lot of positions are a little bit tenuous for them. Well, you know, one thing happens and it affects five other things. So we'll see. We will, and week one will finally it's here. It'll finally provide some answers on Sunday at Paul Brown Stadium where the Vikings open the season against the Bengals. We will be talking to you from Paul Brown Stadium on Sunday night after the game. Recapping it, please check it out on the Access Vikings podcast and check out all of our work at startribune.com. Maybe you should get off the podcast. <laughs>